0: Greetings, and welcome to Office Hours Air. My name is Noah Sfivan. I'm your host. Office Hours Air is a radio program broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio, 90.1 FM, Thursdays, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And we are a podcast available online wherever you listen to podcasts distributed by the Stanford Daily. Office Hours Air exists to bring thinkers, writers, do-gooders from around the campus in conversation about their life and work. My hope for the program is that it will help listeners on their own journeys of discernment, whether they are 25, 52, or 103, or undergraduates like me trying to decide where to go and what to do next. Today's guest is no stranger to my questions. He has patiently answered many questions of mine over coffee, and he is A remarkable man. Dr. Bruce Feldstein is a hospital chaplain at Stanford HealthCare, where he has worked as a chaplain for over 20 years. And unlike most hospital chaplains, Bruce is also a physician. Dr. Feldstein worked as an emergency medicine physician for some 19 years before he decided to become a hospital chaplain. In our conversation, we'll talk about his decision to switch from medicine to chaplaincy, and we'll also, talk about the work of chaplaincy itself. Bruce Feldstein is a clinical professor at the School of Medicine and the director of Jewish Chaplaincy Services at Stanford Healthcare. He accompanies the sick, the dying, and their loved ones in some of the most challenging and moving moments of their lives. Bruce is a professional practitioner of presence. His vocation is attention lovingly cast on the patient before him. And it pays to remember that the etymology of the word patient is one who suffers, and that the word compassion means suffering with. So what a joy it is to welcome Bruce into the studio for this conversation about his life and work. Dr. Bruce Feldstein, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Noah. It's really a treat, (laughs) (laughs) a delight, really, to be here and to see you again on this side of the microphones. (laughs) I love how you've couched this uh, in conversation. I mean, it's such a common word that we use all the time, conversation. But I want to get to the etymology of that, mm-hmm. uh, as I learned in my philosophy training along my way. Uh, conversation includes con, which means together, and from the Latin root, V-E-R-S, uh versari. Uh, we turn or we change. Mm-hmm. So let us enter into this, shall we? In the spirit of conversation, together may we change, and undoubtedly we will. And I hope so, also for our our uh, listeners. Together we change.
0: Amen to that. <laughs> my my first question for you is,
1: what is a chaplain? Oh, that's a fine question. Uh, I have two ways of uh, two ways of responding to that. Um, First, I'll just say something about, um, you know, how we talk about it. And then I'll tell you how I was introduced to it. Uh, So chaplains are people who have committed themselves to the practice of accompaniment. That's our core verb. To accompany people, much as you were talking about, in the midst of their lives, and we come from a variety of faith backgrounds. Chaplains all have a variety of come from a variety of faith backgrounds, and our commitment to accompany and be with people. There's a common training to become a chaplain. It's called clinical pastoral education. I did my professional training in this here at Stanford. There's an accredited program. It's a year-long program if you go through it uh, straight through. Quite intensive actually, and it's a. A program that prepares us in a professional way, you know, with uh, various standards. There's a history of uh, chaplains. Chaplains, many people may know, go back to the Civil War days. There were chaplains on the battlefield. Uh, Walt Whitman hung out and, in a, in his own way, served as a chaplain, Mm. being there with the, uh, the soldiers, writing letters, writing letters home uh, for them and simply being with them. I think at the, at the core of it is it's about meeting with people and being with them in their world as it is for them. That's one of the things that guides me. So professional chaplains, and then there's associations of professional chaplains and standards, and there's accreditation, and I'm also a board-certified chaplain which means that not only have I gone through the training and I have a background of experience, but I've uh, met with and been accepted by uh, my peers at, at the highest level of uh, professional training. But I'll tell you, uh, I could not have imagined when I was an emergency medicine physician that I would one day become a chaplain. I could not have imagined it. I could not have dreamed it. And in fact, if you told me I'd become a chaplain, <laughs> I would have, uh, you know, kind of scoffed. Chaplain. I tore two discs in my back at one point in my mid-40s. I was at the top of my game practicing emergency medicine. I was a clinical professor. I was, had become a visiting scholar at the Center for Biomedical Ethics and academics and, you know, that kind of front page of the curriculum vitae, publishing and uh, talking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Founding faculty for the Stanford Kaiser Emergency Medicine Residency Program. And then one day while helping a friend move some furniture, I felt a rip, a Mm -hmm. tear in my back, and instantly my life changed. Although the writing wasn't on the wall till about eight months later after trying but unsuccessfully to continue my practice, I was at the office of the uh, spine surgeon he looked at the MRI and he looked me in the eye and he said dr. Feldstein would you like to know what the test shows I said sure and I fully expected him to tell me well you know there's a hyperdensity here and the alignment of this bone on that and and to go through the various anatomy and tell me what had uh, torn or broken or was out of line but instead he did a remarkable thing. He said, Dr. Feldstein, the MRI says you need to find a new work style, <laughs> a new work style. He got to what I've later, well, actually, I was already talking this way. I began to notice it wasn't just about the medical chief complaint and there's a certain language and perspective in medicine that, that physicians follow. But he went to the meaning, mm. the underlying chief concern, what matters most. And he responded to that without my asking him. And he said, you need to find a new work style. End of career. End of career. And that really thrust me, threw me into a whole question I had no idea. So now what? And it's the same question, you know, we ask ourselves all the time along in life, well, who am I? And uh, what now? And then how shall I live? And, you know, now what? What's my purpose? And those kind of things. Um, that sounds familiar, doesn't it, to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it certainly uh, opened itself up to me. And one thing I discovered along the way was something I also learned in some, from a number of wise teachers, that there's sometimes we can't immediately get answers we can't get answers to questions that aren't so obvious, as the poet Rilke says. And yesterday was his birthday, by the way, Rayner Maria oh. Rilke. Oh, and he talks about living with questions. Mm. Don't try and seek the answers which cannot be given you. Live the questions, he says. And that's the important thing about living the questions. And live the questions now, knowing that gradually, someday, you'll live along into the answer. So that was great wisdom. That was a gu- guiding star for me. And I left that uh, clinic office and I had no idea but I knew that the question was, what's next? And for me it was, where's my heart? Um, and I couldn't answer it. And I don't mean let my heart like a cardiac muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean my heart, as one of my teachers, Rachel Remen says, the heart is an organ of vision. Mm. In medicine, they don't teach you that in the gross anatomy lab. The heart is an organ of vision. You know it allows us to see what matters, what's meaning, uh, to look into a future from within ourselves and in a way that, well, let's just say the word calls to us. Um, So I lived that question, and again, I had no idea what I was going to do. I thought I'd become a... Uh, an ethicist. I was offered a position, in fact, at the American Medical Association. And, but then it, it didn't seem, you know, I couldn't say my heart was in it. <laughs> um, it's a much bigger story. But at one point, I traveled to Jerusalem to, uh, to study uh, Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy, uh, Judaism as a religion. It called to me. I did that, and I came back. I was at an international conference on uh, Jewish medical ethics held here in the Bay Area, and there were, oh, 400 physicians from around the world and leading ethicists, Nobel Prize winners, uh, rabbis. And in the middle of that conference, among many things, I was sitting next to a guy, and this was out of the blue. And so much of what prompts us in different ways appears out of the blue. It's not like a thought inside. It's not something we figure out. It's a happening. (laughs) And this guy turns to me and he says, you know, you, you ought to become a chaplain. Mm -hmm. I said, what? Just like that, what chaplain? Chaplains are Christians. Well, this is what I thought. He says, no, 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 chaplains come from all different faith backgrounds. They come from all different faith backgrounds. I said, hey, look, I'm not a rabbi. You know, I'm not one of these people who are like pastors and ordained. Uh, I'm a physician. He says, ah, it doesn't matter if you're a rabbi or you're ordained. And, I, and he says, you see that lady over there? She's not a rabbi, and she's a chaplain. Chaplains can come from all different backgrounds, from social work, from psychology, from education. So why not medicine? Mm. And I said, huh. And it turned out at Stanford they had a program in becoming a chaplain and a volunteer program. And so I volunteer, I thought, well, I'll try it out. And do you know what? I felt at home. I felt at home and in a way like I had never felt at home in my work or my, any of my professional life.
0: Can you say more about that feeling, what, it, what being home felt like?
1: No, it just felt home. Mm. It felt right. It's like where I belong. This, I belong here, a sense of belonging. If you want to ask me now, what did that feel like? No, <laughs> but you know it. You know it when you see it. You know. Uh, so I volunteered, and then found out about chaplains. And then uh, there was a, a a guy in charge. No, he was he was a reverend, George Fitzgerald. I really admire this man. He had helped to set up this program of spiritual care, been in it for a long time. And I went into his office. He was in charge of the training and the whole program. And I said, uh, I'd like to become a chaplain. He said, great. What's your ordination? I said, uh, well, I'm not ordained. He says, oh, well, uh, where did you go to seminary? Because this was the traditional background. And I said, well, I didn't. He said, oh. And he said, so what is your background? I said, well, I'm a physician. And he said, oh. (laughs) And he was interested that I wanted to be a chaplain, but I didn't have any of the usual, uh, didn't meet the typical criteria. Nowadays, I do. Because chaplaincy in the 90s shifted from being focused more on religion and now it's focused on the spirituality and he said, so why do you want to? And I explained how I came to this. And he says, oh, and asked me to apply and uh, accepted me. He, he later said, you know, we decided we'd take a chance on you. <laughs> so that was 24 years ago.
0: And can you talk about so so that? That was your one-year residency program in clinical pastoral education. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you changed over the course of that year,
1: um, how the year changed you? Oh, indeed. Um, I think I'll, I'd like to share it by way of a story. Because mm. even before I injured my back, there were inklings of this in who I was and, and what I was doing. And it showed up one day like this in the emergency department where I found myself praying with a patient and how it's changed me now, fast forward, that I've become a chaplain, what at the time, and I'll, and I'll share the story of Mrs. Martinez, what at the time seemed like way off my map, out of my universe. It really seemed illegal. I came walking out of the room that day like, what did I just do? Just prayed with a patient? Isn't there a separation of church and state? You know, we're talking about, you know, distinctions between medicine as it's typically understood and uh, maybe what chaplains uh, do. Or now chaplains are also referred to as spiritual care providers or spiritual care specialists. Uh, But at the time, I just kind of uh, stumbled or was guided or opened up into this. But now fast forward, this is my world. I still drop into the emergency room. I'm at the bedside of patients. I just came from uh, a lady I saw. She had been in a major car crash. I looked at the car. And my first thought was, I turned back to her. I said, my God, you are alive. Mm-hmm. And she, I knew her from before. I had took care of her husband 20 some years ago when he had died. And she knew my background. So you know, when an emergency physician looks at you and says, my God, you know you are alive, you know that's something that we uh, we celebrate uh, I can't take that all that medical background out of me you know uh, she had multiple injuries uh, her ribs two legs this lady uh, but her spirit fully intact with a uh, a commitment to life that was just amazing so this is a little bit like where the 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 physician and the chaplain there's a big overlap actually and if you remind me i'll i'll tell you more but back to mrs martinez i was in the emergency uh, department took sign out uh it was a routine kind of thing the kind of thing we do every day and the doctor said well we've got a lady we'll call her mrs martinez she's in room 7 Um, She's got a metastatic cancer. I'm checking the CAT scan, the x-ray of the brain, to make sure there's no um, metastasis to the brain. Uh, She's been vomiting. We've given her some fluids. Uh, Check everything out, and then we'll, uh, you know, send her to see her oncologist. She's drinking, taking down some uh, food. She's ready to go. Uh, The CAT scan result comes back, and it shows multiple metastases. Now, I only know her for 10 minutes, so I'm not going to give her the news. I'm going to let her doctor give her the news. And I walk in and explain who I am. I've taken over. She looked right at me. Doctor, what was the result of that brain test? I had to tell her. Hmm. I could not not tell her. I sat down. And here we are. We're worlds apart. This lady's twice my age. She's 88. She's from Mexico. I'm from Detroit she's wearing a cross. I'm wearing a stethoscope. Hmm. I say, Mrs. Martinez, the test shows that the cancer has spread to your brain. And Noah, she looked right at me and then looked away. The color fully drained out of her face. She, she looked pale, like, almost like this white piece of paper. And I thought, oh my. What could I possibly say? I always felt that in times like this, as a physician, there was something I could say or do. Uh, Even if I can't cure someone, that I could uh, relieve something. But what could I possibly say? I say, Mrs. Martinez, what's your reaction? And she said, It's a death sentence. And I couldn't disagree. And then I thought, now what am I going to say? Um, I know how you feel. I can't say that. I'm not on her side of her eyelids. Uh, I couldn't, I, I told her, well, you, well, be sure to have you see your physician. He knows you well. He's very experienced in this. And I'll make sure you see him first thing tomorrow. I thought that was a good assurance, medical. She was not fazed. I thought of other things that I could say and then put those aside. And then I saw again the cross. And I remembered a story that a physician teacher of mine had told me about a doctor who had prayed with a patient. (laughs) Now, I'd never done this before. This was not part of medical school. This was not part of my training anywhere growing up. I come from uh, Detroit, Michigan. I come from a Jewish family. Uh, In growing up, we went to Hebrew school. Um, I'm not a prayerful person at the time, um, and certainly not in this kind of situation or with somebody who's, as I said, twice my age and, and from a whole other tradition. She prays to Jesus. I don't, you know, it's, but yet here we are. There's uh, an ethics. There's a pledge that I've already made to be with her in this moment as a physician, and... I asked her, Mrs. Martinez, are you a prayerful person? I decided that's what I needed to do. I had to follow the advice of the story that my teacher told. And she said, yes. And I said, would you like to have a prayer together? And she said, yes. And then I thought, now what? Because uh, I was a reflective practitioner. That's something that I began to uh, develop myself as back in those days and continues uh, in my work now as a, as a chaplain, a reflective practitioner in action, being able to reflect on what's going on, what are my thoughts, what's my background from out of which I'm already listening and interpreting? What are you saying? What's the background and unspoken from which you're also living and unable to put into words perhaps in a moment. So I'm aware of all of this. Um, And she says, yes, I would like to have a prayer. So we had a prayer. Um, And at the end of the prayer, actually it was three prayers. There was the one that I uh, I started. Actually, I waited for her to begin, Noah, Hmm. only, You know, she took my hand and we were sitting there. So now she's waiting for me to begin. And I said, well, how does a prayer go? You know, you acknowledge some higher power, ask for something, say thank you and go home. (laughs) (laughs) It's the four-step emergency doctor on, you know, way, way to do it. And I said, oh, God, you who are the great healer. And she starts to repeat. Oh, God, you who are the great healer. Now, I'm not familiar with this. But in the Catholic tradition, there's this call and response kind of thing. But this is completely outside my world. So now i got to find the words. (laughs) I have to find the words that I could say that are uh, true for me and meaningful and relevant for her that she could repeat. And we go back and forth. Be with us in our time of need. Guide the nurses. I felt like I was just making it up, but then I I learned that, oh, that's a whole tradition of prayer that no one ever told me. It's called spontaneous prayer. Mm. Uh, And at the end of it, thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you for hearing our our prayer. Then she started to offer another prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And I knew most of this because I used to work uh, night shift at the Catholic hospital as an emergency doctor. And that's the prayer they would say just before sending the visitors home. And then she started to say a prayer in Spanish. And I picked out a couple words that I knew, dear God. And it was a prayer to St. Jude, who I later found out was the saint for the hopeless and the destitute. And then we came to the end of our prayer. And the color fully returned to her face. She looked me right in the eye now, a tear spilling over her cheek, and she said to me in a way I will always remember, thank you, doctor, thank you. And that was the end of our prayer. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In that moment, it was unmistakable. Something had happened that I'd never experienced before, and there was healing that happened. I don't mean curing. But healing, you could see physiologically the color had fully returned. There was a a moment of gratitude for however she arrived at that. A moment of deep, deep gratitude. And as I mentioned, I walked out of that room. What did I just do? I think this was illegal. I had a resident with me and I was explaining to him. Uh, I ended up taking that case to the, uh, I was a visiting scholar, as I mentioned, to uh, Ernley Young. Ernley Young was a founder of the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics here at, at Stanford. And I said, Ernley, we had been teaching together. He had invited me to teach with him. I said, Ernley, I, I think I did something like bad. He, he saw that I was shaken. Uh. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I I did something I think was illegal and and, uh, that it might get reported to quality improvement in our department. I I said, except I am head of quality improvement. (laughs) Talk about moral quandary. (laughs) And so I told him the story and we put it, he said, let's put it under the ethical microscope. And under the ethical microscope, it passed all the tests to do good, to do no harm, Respect the patient's autonomy. You ask permission, he said. You didn't impose on her. You didn't proselytize. Uh, And he said, you know, in uh, in the world of chaplains and chaplaincy, what you did was as common as what a doctor does prescribing an antibiotic for an infection. You offered a prayer. And in that moment, I came to see the differences between what it means to be a doctor and what it means to be a spiritual care provider or a chaplain. But I also came to appreciate there's something at the very core for both. There's a centerpiece for both. And it has to do with caring. And it has to do with a commitment to care. Now, the doctor commits to care in the doctoring way. The chaplain or the spiritual care provider, I commit to care in this way. But there's a commitment to care, and that's core. Um, when I walk into a room, as a chaplain now, I always stop and prepare my quality of presence, my attention and intention. Uh, there's a Hebrew word for this. It's called kavanah. Kavana. kavana uh, it's commonly translated as intention, but it has these two aspects to it. There's the quality of our presence, our mindfulness, and then there's the quality of what we intend. There's something that we've pledged ourselves to. Um, And you know what? It's similar as a physician and as a chaplain is what I've discovered, and and that's part of what I teach now. Uh, I teach it at classes at the School of Medicine to the uh, medical students. I introduce it when I'm teaching faculty. uh, um, I'm going to be giving a keynote talk at uh, Taiwan. They have an international symposium coming up, and they've asked me to speak about it there. Uh, So it looks something like this. I can walk into the room in the midst of my busyness and just walk right in and and get started. And that mood, what it tends to produce is some version of uh, busyness or preoccupation or maybe a kind of algorithmic way of going about something, you know, transactional. Or I can enter in in a way that, let me call it covenantal. Where Covenantal recognizes that we are in covenant together, actually as human beings, not just—I'm getting before our faith as human beings, we are in covenant together. And what makes us in covenant together is a sense of belonging. And we all, as human beings, belong to life. Full stop. We belong to life. You belong to life. I belong to life. Uh— so before we get to our gender, before our culture, before our age, before our, our race, before this religion, this membership, this nation state, there's something we all have in common. We belong to life as human beings. And for me, it has the power, I, I had to coin a term for this. Uh, You know, in in medicine, we talk about a stem cell. The stem cell is also what all human beings have in common. There's a biological basis for being human. There's a a stem cell that comes about as a result of a sperm and an egg coming together and fertilizing. This stem cell is, uh, there's a word we use called pluripotential. It has the ability to become each and every part of the human body, of the material body. It'll become a, a blood cell, a bone cell, a heart cell, a brain cell, an eyeball, a, you know, everything, a toenail. <laughs> you know, it becomes all of these things. Uh, but it's not yet it's not yet differentiated into all of those. And that differentiation, that unfolding, happens over time. So a stem cell has the whole package, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole ball of wax, right? It's all there. (laughs) Uh, And to unfold into this material way. And the amazing thing is all these little cellular structures know how to then interact with each other and coordinate and even communicate. So here we already see the communication the interaction between cells and, and organ, organs and organ systems, communication is already part of the biology itself. There's a guy named Umberto Maturana who talks about that. One of my teachers, he was from MIT, uh, originally from Chile, a cell biologist. So we see that communication and a language comes right out of the very fabric of our biology itself. Language is biological. I say that again. Language is biological. It's not like some separate mind thing from the body. It is biological. So when we're in conversation, going back to our bodies are literally changing as we listen and speak. And you and I are looking at each other. Right. Mm. By the way, I'm appreciating the uh, smile on your face. (laughs) You always have such a uh, kind of twinkle in your eye. Well, the stem cell, and I'm kind of belaboring it, but it's important, and it unfolds into all the material parts of our body. We can measure it, we can uh, describe it, and we can look at it under microscopes, et cetera. Well, but but that doesn't encompass the fullness of who we are as human beings. It doesn't encompass our beingness. Our biological being, yes, but what about the being of who we are as a person? And as I said before, gender and relationships, and we're beings in time, we're fragile beings, we're interdependent beings, we're social beings, we're in relationship, we're finite beings. And as I said, we have gender and cultures and all of that, but that's not in the stem cell. I wanna say that's in the stem soul And I'm not saying soul in some religious kind of way here. I want to just distinguish something that also is pluripotential and undifferentiated in its beginning. And then in the same way as a stem soul unfolds and differentiates, so too does a stem soul. Did I say that right? Because stem cell and stem soul both. Don't ask me how these are in concert with each other and all that, I'm still (laughs) puzzling all this. This takes us somewhere beyond theology and physics and into a, a lot of things like that. So as a physician and as a chaplain, as a human being, I join with people at the level of the stem soul and the stem cell, and that inf- and that is my quality of presence. I stand here in my body, but I also stand here with my intention. As I enter into the room, may I meet you, my patient, or the person I will accompany. And the word's my, so it's, it's personal. And I meet you in your world as it is for you.
0: But uh, can, you, can you talk more about this, this ritual that you have, this practice, before you enter the room? Oh,
1: sure, sure. Thank you.
0: Because I I know it has to do with with the moment
1: in which you gel the hands and this sort of thing. Right. Thank you. Um, Yeah, for those of you who are familiar in the hospital, before you go into a patient's room, there's an antiseptic. It's called a gel. And before going into the room, one is required for what they call universal precautions to gel. And we gel in and we gel out. And it uh, provides for... Uh, avoiding spread of germs well since I have to gel anyway, I decide i'm going to make a little ritual out of it and that's a wonderful thing about ritual we can take any 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 everyday kind of activity and imbue it with certain wisdom and meaning something that we do repetitively so I decided that's what I'm doing with this so as I gel in I take that moment to stop to interrupt the already always busyness that's going on. So I stop, and I bring my attention to my feet and to my breathing. And as I breathe in, I'm aware of the sensation of my feet on the floor, of my leg, of my pelvis, of my abdomen, my chest, my thorax, my head, uh, of my body standing between the floor and the ceiling, and I become aware of that. So I'm focusing my attention with another breath. I'm aware of my breath itself as it flows in, as I inspire. In spiritus, we're bringing in spirit, breath and spirit, in Latin, but also in Sanskrit and also in Hebrew. Breath and spirit are share the same words. In Hebrew, the word is ruach. Ruach. You got to get that good huh in there. Ruach. It's the spirit. Uh, and so I'm aware as I breathe in of the breath that comes in, flows in and out, while at the same time aware of the body. And then with a the third breath, as I'm feeling the gel now in my hands, it's a, well, it's a gel. It's got a kind of cool uh, feel to it. It's a gel liquidy sensation. So I'm, a, I'm aware exquisitely now of the sensation of the gel. And I imagine as I breathe in, I'm breathing all my preoccupations into the gel. And then I imagine as the gel evaporates and I feel the coolness, the gel is evaporates away my preoccupations. And so where does that leave me? Present. right? Yeah, you bet. Right here and right now. And now as I'm about to enter into the room, I also remind myself before I, before I knock, I want to remind myself as I enter the room, this is also part of my ritual. And I do this again with a, uh, a breath. By the way, it's taken a lot longer to describe all this than to do it. <laughs> so in real practice, it's, I just stand there with my eyes open that's the advanced, uh, quote, meditative mindfulness practice. To do it with your eyes open so you don't look like you're, you know, standing with one leg up in a yoga pose in the middle of the hallway. I could do that, but it kind of looks a little silly. <laughs> so I've prepared my attention, and before I go in with another breath, as I enter the room, may I meet you, my patient, in your world as it is for you and accompany you from there. May I bring a quality of presence that allows you to connect with your source, your source of comfort, of strength, of meaning, whatever that is for you. What matters for you is what matters for me. And may I listen for and respond to that. What matters for you is what matters for me. That's, that's my definition, operational definition of compassion. I want to listen for what matters for you and I want to respond to that and may I be fully present and respond with all of my life experience as well as my professional training and my professional experience. It's all here available for me to offer to you in the service of life, in the service of healing. There's a quality of listening that I bring Um, I haven't talked about this uh, publicly uh, before, but you know how we have active listening. You know, that's when I want to, I listen for you and I give a kind of feedback so you know that I know what you're saying. We're on the same page. Rachel Remen then talks about another kind of quality of listening called generous listening, where I want to listen not to try and fix you or to problem solve or to give advice. I want to listen to be with you without having to necessarily even understand it. I wanna hear how it is for you. And then there's another kind of listening that's called disclosive listening. It takes both of these to another level. And while I'm listening, I wanna listen for what new possibilities may arise. What new possibilities may arise for you that we haven't seen before. Maybe there's something then I can now offer in response. Um, So I'm also listening for what's unsaid and unspoken and in a way that opens up a horizon of future. So it's a it's a joining process, joining with people, being with.
0: um... Have you have you seen or heard about this new movie, A Still Small Voice?
1: Remind me, is that the one about the uh, palliative care physician?
0: It's, um, it just came out, I think, this year, and it was um, directed by a Stanford alumnus. And But it's, it follows the, the um, journey of uh, a resident in, in, a, in a clinical pastoral education program at Massachusetts General. Oh, right. And, uh, but, but the reason why I bring it up is because um, the, 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 the primary educator of the program— um, a reverend named David, the surname of whom I've forgotten, um, you know, says, and and the director uses this at the beginning of the movie, that, you know, we live in a society where, you know, people say, don't just stand there, do something. And then he says that, right, chaplains try to flip that and say, you know, don't just do something, stand there. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But, um, I, I mean, I found that movie really um, wonderful. There was, a, there was this... Um, a, a showing of it here, and he, the the director was there, and his sister is a chaplain, and there were lots of chaplains in the audience.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's that is so good because it's so true, and it's, it's one of the things. Unlike, um, I know one of the questions that that you think about, you've thought about, is uh, you know, so what's the difference between a doctor and a and a chaplain? And actually, we could talk. A, it can be a more, a basic difference between. Um, people who are oriented like we so are in the west we're oriented to our doing accomplishing um well before all that all that arrives in language and out of our various commitments and inside our you know our, our you know our human social context but before all that is our human being and that's what the flip is uh before before the doing is the being. The doing comes out of the being. I become a big fan of observing the the I don't know how to call it. It might sound a little philosophical or mystical or because it is that too. It's the the nature of my being itself. Um, The place from out of the place within which I already am, always already am. From out of which I move forward in life and and react to. Um, Said another way, uh, Rachel Remen uh, likes to talk about the antecedent of our commitment, and commitment is always is about action. The antecedent of our commitment is meaning. And so when I'm with you, or actually now it's, you, uh, one of the thoughts I know you've asked me about, well, how has being a chaplain changed me? Mm-hmm. I now, this is how I am in life. It's not just <laughs> at the bedside, it's at the grocery store. When I'm in the back of the Uber cab, you know, I, when I meet people, I, I encounter them. I mean, like, really, I encounter them. There's a way where I I don't stop in jail, but I stop and I'm aware. Mm. You know, when I encounter you, we come face to face. I've learned at the bedside so much uh, from patients. I've learned how who we are really is each other. Mm. Who we are is each other. And so there's a little bit of you and me and me and you. Um, And these are not new ideas, but I've come to really like get it, you know, <laughs> like really get it. Uh, it's like you have to hear it over, over and over again. I'll tell you where it really that really uh, I, I saw that I was at the bedside. It was some years ago. Again, it's this idea of who we are as each other. And there was a a husband and wife. They're married 68 years. And or maybe it was 70 some years, you know, they're, they're married a long time and she's lying in the bed. She's quite ill, but she's uh, she's very aware and alert and so appreciative. And he's got his hand over the railing and holding on to her hand. It was a a gesture of just beautiful devotion. Mm. And as she's talking, he's just holding her hand. He's been sitting there maybe like he has he, and he's not going anywhere. He's not going over going anywhere. And it occurs to me and I said to them I said, "You know, when I see the two of you this way I can't help but see the love and the devotion between you. And that's a kind of medicine that does not come in the IV. Mm-hmm. I just want you to know that, sir." And it was like a deep bow. I honor that in you, you know. Uh, so then, often I'll—not often—for me, no visit is complete without uh, without a blessing or a prayer. Now, not everybody is not everybody is uh, religious or spiritual, so this language might not work. But I can always ask. So, what can I wish for you before I go? So that was the situation with this couple. So I said to her, what can I wish for you before you go? And, you know, I don't remember what she said. But I said, you know, I do. I wish all that for you. Because my heart's full, and it's true when I ask this. What can I wish for you? And, uh, And I wish also what you can't even put into words. And then I realized something. I said, you know, I also have to ask your husband. What can I wish for you? because I turned back to her and I said, because if I wish for you, and you've been married for all these years, who you are is each other. I have to ask you too, you too, sir, what do you wish for her? And that's where I heard myself say that, who we are is each other. And it's really true. You know, in that relationship, they could finish each other's sentences and all kinds of things. Uh, They're not entirely each other. Of course, they're in in two bodies, but they are each other in terms of their being to such a great extent. And so I I discovered that. Uh, That's one of the kind of things you discover in the course of doing the work. Gosh, it's not just doing the work. It's in the course of living, living our, you know, what's honest and true for us and paying attention. Stuff will come out of our mouth and there's all kinds of wisdom there that was, you know, just waiting to be revealed. <laughs> so, you know, that's one of the, I have to tell you the the joys of doing this and that I'm so grateful for. I'm also thinking I had no idea what I was getting into when I said yes to this because there was a lot of suffering that I've witnessed. There's been a lot. Of injustice that I've witnessed. There's been a lot of ugliness, um, horror, um, stuff that's like negatively unbelievable. Um, but what I've also come to see that there's something even much grand, there's such something greater. There's a grander, we belong to life. And in the end, uh, and it's my experience with people, in the end, there's, uh, there's a peace. There's an abiding goodness that is, that is there.
0: Um, How have you endured those moments of, of suffering or when you've been bearing witness to suffering? I mean, what's kept you
1: going? Well, first of all, let me get back to the part about the enduring because sometimes it's, uh, it's awful, and I cry and I scream and I can't, you know, I feel like I can't stand it. And, and then I've got people in my life. I've, I've learned to develop some key relationships to keep me buoyant. Mm. One of those, I, I had a, uh, a friend of mine who was a firefighter who then became a spiritual care volunteer and went on to become a rabbi. Um, but he was telling me when you're fighting a fire, you have uh, somebody that you say, I'm going in. And they've got your back. And it's like you're, they're maybe literally tethered to you. So when they go in and you disappear into the fire, if you don't come out in a certain time, they're there to, to pull you out or go look for you. And it's sort of like that. So there's key relationships that I've, I've uh, come to develop, relationships with um, colleagues. So we have a way of understanding that this is the nature of what we do and we're there for each other. On a moment, we can stop and pull somebody aside. And I've done that for others and also received that from others. They never taught me that in kindergarten. (laughs) They never taught me that in high school or medical school. Man, that's something that we could all learn, I'll tell you, that we really are interdependent. We really are fragile. We really do require and depend on each other. Uh, And we really are finite, you know, like... uh, it's like really the way it is. Uh I want to ask you about spiritual care
0: in in the hospital setting for sure. for healthcare providers. I mean how how often are you interacting with you know doctors and nurses and you know when they when they have moments of
1: Every day. Mm. Every day. Uh <laughs> It's funny. Uh somebody said to me, they said, "You know, when you walk you're walking down the hallway, uh, it's like you have these antenna <laughs> that are looking. And how is it that suddenly the, the doctor who you knew, who you hadn't seen before, just comes up and, and comes and makes a beeline for you. And then, like, within a moment, you're talking about listening for something that's been really troubling around their mind. And you see them just walk away, you know, like uplifted and ready to go. So um, it's all part of the wholeness of this. Um, To me, spiritual care is everyone's job, including as human beings, to be there with and for people in a way that's meaningful, that cares for each other, that says what matters for you is what matters for me. I mean, doesn't that just seem so obvious? Yeah. Uh, They tried teaching us that in kindergarten. I I like that expression. I learned that from one of my teachers, you know, what we never learn in kindergarten. Uh.
0: I'm a a resident assistant, just an, an RA in a in a first year dorm. Yeah. And, you know, one reason why I've sought out that position is because it's a it's a way to have some responsibility for some level of care. And as an undergraduate with all of my academic responsibilities and opportunities, but I um I mean I think as a result of my conversations with you, um I've ended up telling you know my supervisor the resident one of the resident fellows, um that I'm becoming convinced that every conversation is chaplaincy and that, or, you know, of, of some kind, or, I mean, spiritual care?
1: I, I think so. You know, uh, what if we recognize that spirituality is not something separate from other aspects of our being? You know, um, in medicine, they used to say, well, medicine was a bio, biomedical field. And when I went to school in the nineteen seventies at the University of Michigan, boy, I was—I'd be able to wake up at two o'clock in the morning in the operating room, tell the anesthesiologist the derivation, uh, the chemical derivation of epinephrine, and all the enzymes and the biochemistry and the psychopharm, uh, the psychopharmacology, the the kinetics, the indications, the contraindications, all of that, all that science and medicine and. And, and diseases of that involve this. Then we learned that medicine was also, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, psychological and social. Ooh, we got to pay attention to the mood. <laughs> got to pay attention to the emotions. Got to pay attention to the social relationships. Because all this is part of medicine, too. I'm being a little facetious. But it was something like that. And we discovered that medicine is... S- Biopsychosocial. In fact, we had a lecture one day, and we were in the uh, amphitheater type seating. And they came in and they said, "You know, again, I'm going to be a little facetious." They they came in and said, "There's been a, a major new discovery by Masters and Johnson." Oh, what is it? Yes, uh, they've discovered that human beings are sexual beings, and we all gasped. Oh, can we talk like that in the? Medical school, you know, and they went on to talk about—now fast forward into the 1990s. They have discovered—are you ready for this? Buckle your seatbelt. They've discovered that human beings are spiritual beings. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the chaplains at the uh, Children's Hospital— Oh. Uh, Wilma Reichert. She's just great. She says, what is it with these residents? They're more comfortable taking a sexual history than asking people if they uh, have any beliefs that are important to them or if they perhaps have uh, beliefs in God that they'd like to share. <laughs> so these are not like simple, separate aspects of our being, you know, our body, our biology, our psyche, our psychology, our mind. Uh, our sociology our culture you know and and then our our spiritual actually it's all part and parcel of being human so what if we were to interact with each other with the fullness of your, the fullness of my humanity really does see and interact with the fullness of your humanity you know when the hindus come together and they go namaste that's part of what the namaste means, the fullness of our humanity, of God, of, the, of the, the je ne sais quoi. You know what? We can't even put it into words, but it's there that we all belong to, like life and extension. Um, we're all part and parcel of something. It really is a different way of being with each other. It's something I've discovered and was different than my, I don't know, what what? A rationalistic, you know, either or, uh, Western, recent, you know, last few hundred years, four or five hundred way of looking, but what happens if we really come to appreciate the the being of being human, just like in an everyday way, mm. you know? How do you think the
0: profession? will change in the coming decades, or if I can put the question differently, after your lifetime and after my lifetime, what will spiritual care look like?
1: Um, You know, when you said, what will the profession change, then I was going to say, well, which one? (laughs) Are we talking medicine? Are we talking spirituality? Well,
0: I I almost want to ask you if you you reckon that, you know, maybe 100, 200 years from now, spiritual care and medicine could collapse or, you know, become less... (laughs) It become less distinct.
1: Well, I think what will be the same in two hundred years, and that's a fantastic question. Um, like to imagine two hundred years. So two hundred years is beyond like a uh, a certain kind of historical imagination. Although we could draw on history over two hundred years, or a thousand, but one thing that seems uh, certain is that we'll still there will still be human beings and we'll still have human nature. Now, how that gets organized and that gets into a whole nother thing, you know, when you start talking about cyborgs and all of this kind of stuff, but that's something else, but they'll still be human beings. And there's a certain really essential structure of being human, which is we're biological beings. Within and out of that biology is language and i don't mean like french and english but i mean ways that we communicate and coordinate with each other and we're we're beings in time historical beings and we are fragile we are you know interdependent and finite and out of that is caring um heidegger talks about this to be human is to care caring is constitutive of being human Mm. we care for things that we're concerned about we have to take care of our body and survive that's where the you know caring's right there Um, and then you could have different levels of caring beyond that so uh we will care We'll be people who care and, we're, and we're, we belong to life and we're on a planet. I don't know what other planets we're going to be in 200 years. Um, I can't answer the question, but I can begin to imagine and kind of lay out some of it. I don't know. How's, how's my response? What do you, you know, ping pong, ping back to you. <laughs> you know, <what? laughs>
0: well, I just, I mean, because right, I'm I, I'm studying history right now. And yeah. you you laid out you know some of the things that you said you were facetiously describing medicine the field of medicine learning in the 1980s and the 1990s that were sexual beings that were spiritual beings um and i wonder if in our push toward science and medical interventions and knowing more about the body if if that sort of was an overcorrection for you know how we used to do things before and, and ultimately maybe what we'll arrive at is the kind of balance that your own career embodies, which is a yeah. combination of, of, of the most rigorous, sophisticated possible medical training with spiritual care. Um, oh. Where the kind of encounter you had with Mrs. Martinez is not looked at as, you know, a potential, potentially illegal, but, you know, p- part of the job description.
1: Yeah. How about this? You're a, a man of history and philosophy and such. Um, so medicine was there before— Medicine has been around a long time, right? Mm. How long has it been around? I can't answer that. Centuries, centuries. No, millennia. Right. Let's talk millennia. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we go back to the, you know, there's Roman, there's Greek, there's a shamanic medicine. Maybe the, uh, Okay. Um, now what about science? How old is science as we're understanding science? We could talk about the Scientific Revolution, right? Which is 400? Yeah, years okay, ago. let's talk about that. So medicine was here long before science. Mm. Um, now what's happened in medicine, medicine and I want to give credit also to Rachel Remen, one of my teachers uh, science is our latest tool of medicine. Science is a tool of medicine. Science is, medicine is not science. Science is a tool of medicine. It's one of the ways that a way of looking and being that we use, and we've used successfully, some great stuff that comes out of science that allows us to practice medicine. But medicine is there before our science, and it's going to be there after our science. I don't know how long science is going to last. Probably a long time. You know, it had a beginning, things also have an end. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not the whole story, right? So I am coming to think, as uh, others are, that science is a tool of medicine, but being of service is, is more about what our medicine is about, being of service. It's about caring, being of service, being of service to each other, being of service to our families, our communities, being of service to life itself. Being of service also says that I'm not in control. The whole notion of control is only also several hundred years old. It goes back to medieval days. Did you know that?
0: Mm.
1: You know, yeah. we talk about control like, oh, I'm in control. I can predict. No. No, you know, there's things what we can predict, you know, within statistical possibilities, but life so much Bigger than that. Here's one other thing that I've come to uh, appreciate from becoming a chaplain. We really do belong to life. We are not in control. We can't be. There's things that are uncontrollable. Life and the world is more than what I can uh, understand. In fact, it is unknowable. Unknowable. I can I experience life, but there's something about life and living that is really indescribable. You just can't describe it. I can feel it, experience, but I can't describe it. And we all know this to be. So let's call that mystery. We belong to mystery. We arise out of mystery. I was talking with a physicist today. I love talking to physicists because we're you know at a certain point we arrive at the same the mystics and the physicists arrive at the same place did you know that <laughs>
0: wonder or awe or? yeah
1: exactly well wonder and awe and wonder and awe uh is a mood a human mood that arises out of um, when we stand in the face of something that is just indescribable you know and then we have words for that ineffable you know you can't describe it this guy that i'm uh was talking to today works at nasa and he studies dark matter. Dark matter is a way of saying there's something there and I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> We're just going to use this uh, poetic language called dark matter. We can't measure it. Uh, but they can begin to describe And, and he even knows because he's got a lot of uh, humility about his knowing. He has humility which says, you know, even if we go on to describe all this, we know that it's going to be more that's indescribable. But I'm just going to already accept that. One time at the bedside, years ago I walked up to a guy, I'll just call him Mel, he was on my list of patients. Um. Happened to be a Jewish man, I walked in, he saw I was wearing this yarmulke. I started wearing that once I became a chaplain. Mm. Uh, gave up my stethoscope, I wear a yarmulke. I walked in, He said, I said, uh, oh, hello, my name's Bruce, I'm Jewish, uh, now we'd say Jewish spiritual care provider, or Jewish chaplain. And uh, saw your name, just wanted to say hello and wish you well. That's, you know, that's an opening. And he said, uh, he said, well, I just want you to know I'm not religious. I said, you know, that, that's okay. But did I have the, am I in the right room? He said, yeah. Um, he says, I'm a physicist. I said, oh. And so we get talking a little bit, and he tells me, you know, I don't believe in God. I just, just got to get that out of the way. I said, fine, you know, I'm here to, you know, be with you in your world. And he said, and then he looks to the side, like he didn't want anybody to hear what he was about to tell me. He's, it's a secret. I get these from some of these Stanford physicists and Nobel Prize winners who I who I talk to, people of great science. Man, do I respect them! But then they get this moment where they look to the side like this guy Mel, and he <laughs> says, "Listen, sometimes I take the equations out as far as they go. You know that that's the language of physics. They, they." they think in mathematics i i can't even begin to go there uh he says i take the the equations out as far as they go now this guy has won some kind of top prize in the field and he says and i take the equations as far as they'll go and i know they can't go any further and there's probably like four people on the planet who understand what he's talking (laughs) about and then he looks at me says and i can't take it any further And then he looks up and he gets this look, and I've seen this look on a lot of different people. And he says, but I know there's more. Hmm. It's a look of awe and something. And he says, I know it's good. I know and it's good. He says it like that. Wow. So I've learned to respect uh, there is mystery all the time. So, you know, what's nice about that. You don't have to know everything. <laughs> and, you, and you can't know everything. So we can just, you know, know and do what's before us, what we can care about. And now here's the other thing. It's about the uniqueness of everyone. Um, again, I just really discovered this at the, uh, at, at the bedside. This is at the children's hospital. Um, as human beings, we all come out of a stem cell and I'll say a stem soul and at the same time that's true for everybody and we also come out of it in each in our unique way so here's what I discovered about uh now when I say that that sounds kind of obvious right but here's where I really got it you know so I I am at the children's hospital and I'm visiting a, a woman who's got a newborn baby the baby is hours old. When I say hours old, I mean like fresh out, you know, <laughs> yeah. fresh out. And I walk into the room and she's got the baby on her chest and the father is there. And and I walk in, you know, hello, I saw you were here. May I come in? I uh, just wanted to, you know, just to wish you well. Yeah. Oh, please. And so they welcome me in and, and we talk. And then uh, we get to the part where, um, you know, may I offer you a blessing? Oh, would you please? Well, what should we bless? What blessing shall we have? Let's bless this little one. Oh, and what should we bless this little one for? So the the mother goes first and she talks about what she hopes for the little one. The father goes. And then uh I then it occurred to me one day, I said, I I looked at this little face and I looked up, I said, you know, Dad, this little one looks like you, but not you. And mom looks just like, no, looks like you, but not you. This, this little one is unique. Hmm. And when I say unique, I mean unique, like never, ever, ever in your family has been this little one in the whole history of all your family and both your families. Has there ever been this one? In fact, this little one is unique in the history of all humanity ever and always going all the way back. Talk about history. Has there ever been this one? Mm. This one is unique. And by the way, we could prove this, you know, we could do DNA and retinal scans and fingerprints and, you know, like snowflake is unique. This one, this unique. And then I said, and in the future of all your families and all our humanity, Nor will there ever be one as this one. This little child is unique. Hmm. And when I think about that, Noah, I find I'm stunned. I'm stunned. It just takes me to awe every time. Hmm. Every time. So that's also true in 200 years. I mean, as far as I I can think... No, I'm not one who's working with the genetics and, you know, if you take two exact things, like we have identical twins, but even identical twins are not identical. There's something, so there's still something unique about us. For me, that means there's something precious, uh, no accident, uh, you know, deeply meaningful. Cannot, should not be ignored something to celebrate, ultimately good. And, and
0: how beautiful that is for that, I mean, the particular family you're talking about, having this moment of, of, of well-wishing, receiving Uh-oh. from you and, and, and being invited to, to speak in that in that way. Yeah. Which I think is something moving about prayer and, and blessings and these sorts of things in general. I mean, in my own experience, looking at my family and other people, I mean, it, it gives people permission to say things that they're feeling and thinking and might not say explicitly and, and without that, you know, yeah, opportunity.
1: Do you know what? I'm, as I'm uh, sitting with you here, uh, I'm realizing we haven't talked about God in this
0: mm.
1: or religion.
0: We also haven't talked a lot about death, I don't think. But.
1: Also. So and yet. For people who are religious, they can hear God in all this Mm. when we talk about mystery and there's something that's ever present. Uh, So for me, this way of, I don't for me, because part of me is a religious person. Uh, I've come to, to as a Jewish person. And I've also participated in a Catholic community and Hindu community. And Buddhist community and Sufi and and a lot in a you know deeply religious way too, but there's something about this that has that that sensibility. But I don't need to use the language of um, a language of God. Although I although I can, hmm. so I'm not sure where this this thought is taking me. But maybe that's a, a way of thinking that also takes us into the next 200 years, mm. you know, that we can come up with a new way of observing ourselves, of the the nature of who we are as human beings.
0: If I can take us in a little bit of a different direction, I, I want to ask you about your own sense of your own mortality and how you relate to that. And, oh. Um, I mean... Yeah. If, if you're also scared of death, like so many of your patients might be.
1: So how about you? Why do you ask? <laughs> well, <laughs> why do you think I'm asking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People usually ask because they ask out of a genuine concern mm. or somewhere. It's not merely academic, right? Mm. Yeah. Have you almost died? Uh, not that I know of. Yeah. Okay. Uh well, we can carry that. We can continue this off, uh, you know, with with some coffee. But I, I think about this every day now. Mm. Um, I'm turning seventy uh, on the day after Christmas. So, in my Jewish family, we call that Brusmas, the day after <laughs> Christmas. That was the day. Christmas was always the day in our family where everybody had the day off, so we always celebrated. So it's you know it's part of my bones too. So I'm turning seventy. But even before this, as an emergency physician, it really, really was apparent to me. We live from heartbeat to heartbeat, from breath to breath. How many people did I see and resuscitate or try and resuscitate whose heart suddenly stopped? Or they suddenly were no longer breathing. End of game. The lady I was with at the hospital today, she was in this major head-on car crash and as it was happening she was she knew i i could die she was not in control she didn't know what was going to happen but she really knew and in, and when i went in to see her today she says you know in a second my life was changed and i'm alive but it also could have been that she's not we could have been at her graveside and i've done a lot of funerals that's something that is Really special and an honor to do Um, so I think about that I do live from heartbeat to heartbeat Um, it also really struck me with 9-11 boy you know you and, and for a long time I would leave my house and I'd want to make sure that I'd keep going back in to make sure everything was straightened up and I didn't know why it occurred to me oh you just never know really are you gonna be are you gonna come home again mm. so I've decided to keep that as a practice at the same time there's the expression you know you are live to 120 um, I was at the funeral just recently of someone lived to 103 I've had patients who are up to uh, 100 and something um, so I'm going to live somewhere between now and then, and here's the here's the real truth, and I can't know when. So and I also learned this at the bedside. Death is not a failure of life. Mm-hmm. Somehow I got in my uh, got in my head, my mind wherever these things deposit themselves in the that conversational space, that death was a failure of life. No, no, it's not. We're finite beings, and death is not a failure of life. Death, so then what is death? Death is a fulfillment of a promise that's made to every human being that at the moment we take or are given our first breath, at some moment, we will take or give back our last breath. And that moment will occur and when it does that moment itself will circumscribe the wholeness Mm. of our days so death is not a failure of life it's a fulfillment a fulfillment of a promise that when we take our first breath or it's given to us we'll take our last or it will be taken back and that moment will circumscribe the wholeness of our days and we can't know when that will be Mm. it could be in five minutes I see that. We've seen that at the children's hospital. It can be in five hours, five weeks. It could be in five years or 50 years or, you know, 100 and some years. Can't know when. So what's it like to know on the one hand I live from heartbeat to heartbeat, and that's really true? Hmm. Or I might live to 100 or I can live to 150. No, not 150, 105, 100 and something. In my case, if I get into my 80s, I'm already, you know, well past my father and I'm wondering. But we can't know when. So then how is it to live knowing both are true? That's something that I've been, uh, that's a practice that I'm taking on. Mm. How do we live in every moment where both are true? What do you think?
0: I mean, what you said about presence at the outset is what comes to mind. Yeah. Trying to, and, and you talked about, I mean, and when when you when you talked about the practice of gelling, you talked about doing it with your eyes open and trying to make every moment this kind of thing. And I think yeah. that might be the best answer
1: huh. I've heard so far. Yeah. I also want to say that um, I'm in a moment of certain kind of clarity here, but I don't live in this moment all the time. You know, Eeyore? Eeyore? <laughs> the
0: from, forgetful cartoon character from the children's Poonie the Pooh?
1: yeah Eeyore, I got a part of me that's a Eeyore character I just want to let you know that's me too <laughs> you know we, we bring all of ourselves to us so uh, do I have to live to be 90 years old? <laughs> it's not like do I get to do I have to I mean that I, actually that's a real thing for me so I, I wonder about that sometimes too
0: so and my, my great grandmother lived to be 105. She did. And, and she used to say that she felt like God forgot her because she had outlived all of
1: her loved ones. Uh-huh.
0: Um, so I, I guess she also had her Eeyore
1: moments. <laughs> yeah. So I think for me, it's about, well, let's just live life and do so in good company. Mm. And we have a choice. You know, which which way do I choose? I'll, I'll choose to look at it, you know, to look for humor. Um. Uh, To look for what matters most, you know, to get in the middle of it and, you know, fight for the fight, Um, to grieve, to uh, struggle, to fight, to rail against stuff, to lament. That's all part of living, too, Um, as well as to uh, celebrate.
0: Hmm. I think we should come to a close now. Good.
1: Um, well i I have a question for you okay you've been asking me great questions and i don't know maybe for you and also for our listeners uh so noah what what can we wish for each other (laughs) what shall we wish for each other before we go like really yeah and it also means even if we have no idea how it might come to be the
0: simple physical answer is that i think i need to sleep more and 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 pay more attention to health which is the i know the answer of a lot of people in the world and on this campus um but i think i i also want to keep trying to ask these kinds of questions in a in a responsible and thoughtful way yeah and um
1: yeah so may you get that rest that you you need and May you continue to uh, live life fully mm. and be open to the the call, the call that has your name in it, Noah, <laughs> Noah. It comes as a still small voice mm. at any moment in time. And, and may you be well used, mm. be of service. What can I wish for you? Oh, uh... I'll, let's take two of those. I could use some rest, okay, <laughs> and to have the uh, the patient and the openness and the you know and the opportunity to uh share mm. uh, yeah, to be of service may
0: you continue to let yourself be an instrument for for helping others see their own finitude and beauty mm. and may you continue to teach and remind others that. We are each other. And I hope that you remember in your Eeyore moments that those two are part of the beauty and fullness of it all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well put. Well, thank you again so very much. Thank you, Bruce.
0: That was my interview with Dr. Bruce Feldstein. Bruce Feldstein is a chaplain at Stanford Healthcare, where he's the director of Jewish Chaplaincy Services. After 19 years as an emergency medicine physician, he transitioned to working as a chaplain. And over the course of our conversation today, we had the chance to talk about those experiences and what a joy it was to talk with Bruce. You've been listening to Office Hours Air, broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio, 90.1 FM. Thanks for listening.